Oh God, thank you so much for this wonderful study of Judges. It's such a dark period, but um, it is so encouraging and so convicting. I know for me personally, I've been convicted of sin in my own life, and it has caused me to sit down and and sit before you and, and meditate and ponder where have I been guilty of the sins of, that these people are so guilty of. And it has caused me to look in awe at you that you would use any of us, because we are all very flawed, flawed vessels. I, I know myself how flawed I am and where I struggle and the sins in my life. And it, it humbles me that you would put me in this place on Tuesday mornings to teach these, these godly men and women. I, I thank you for that. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you that um, you are active in our lives and that you are sovereign in our lives. There's such great comfort in that. Father, this book has, has really been interesting. It, it has um, been fun to study. But I, I pray more than anything today that we'll just tie up all the loose ends as we look at these final events that will also tie up the loose ends of what you want us as believers today in 2016 to learn from these events and to learn from what you left for us from this book because you have told us that all of these things have been written that they might instruct us and that all the scripture is inspired to encourage us, to exhort us, to reprove, and to convict, and to train us in righteousness. So we pray, Father, that as we pull everything together and have our final study and our final comments, that we would walk out of here, each of us with a takeaway that is going to help us become more righteous and more Christ-like in our walk with you. Um, Father, protect our time and help us to cover the points that we need to and to glean the things that you want us to glean this morning. We just commit our time to you now in your son's name. Amen. Okay. 19, 20, 21, the final three chapters of Judges. Um, in this familiar refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what is right in his own eyes. I want us to take just a minute and go back to last week and what we saw last week. Do you all kind of remember the theme of last week? How would you describe it? We had, we had Micah, and we had, who'd we have? His Levite, and the people of Dan. What, what were the people doing? What was Micah doing? Okay, people were comfortable with their living situation. Somebody remember what Micah did? He had, well, he stole money from his mother, and then when she pronounces a curse, he goes, oh, well, I took it, because he doesn't want the curse. She commends him for giving it back, <laughs> and then says, well, we'll dedicate it to the Lord. But the dedication to the Lord was only 200 pieces of the 1,100 pieces of silver, and then was it really given to the Lord? What did, he, what did they do? Yeah, he, he, gets, he, he makes a, a card image and a metal image and a shrine, and he makes an ephod, and he ordains his son as priest, doesn't he? Do you remember the little thing I drew last week where we were kind of talking about did what was right in their own eyes, kind of that little, that little mixing bowl? So he put in some elements of, of right, what I call rightness, which is what we're going to see a lot of this, this week, and some elements of, of wrongness. 
to create his idea of worship. So I've got, I do have a priest, and I've got an ephod, um, but the wrongness is I've got these, these, these images, and I've got the wrong priest, and even when I get a Levite, when the Levite comes along and he pays him, there's a wrongness in that, in that he's, he is a Levite, that's right, there's a rightness about that, because the Levites were separated to be priest to the nation of Israel, but the wrongness is he's, he's been bought, right? And he's set up to be just, you know, kind of a personal household priest. And so Micah takes all this, mixes it up, stirs it around, and says, well, there, I got it. I've got all the elements that I need so that I can worship the Lord and he will prosper me. Do you remember that? I, I, I'm good to go. And remember when the people of Dan come in and they take away his ephod and his images and his priests, he runs after them, totally outnumbered. He really can't do anything about it. And he goes, well, you've taken everything. What, what else do I have left? And you can see just in him this, this devastation that, not, well, now I won't prosper. I don't have anything and how all wrong all this is. Everybody's doing what is right in his own eyes. So I have elements of what is right, but yet I've brought in all these elements of my culture, what I'm culturally conditioned, and mixed it in. And essentially what I get is really not a right worship, but a wrong worship. Do you all see that? So all the chapters last week, 17 and 18, if anything, they're kind of giving us a summation at this particular period of, of the judges of here's what's wrong with their worship. Here's what's wrong with their religion. Now, they had a lot of religiosity, did they not? There's talk about the Lord. They want to worship him in some way, shape, or form. It's not a lack of religion. It is a wrong religion. So that brings us into today, chapter 19. Who are the characters in chapter 19? We have another Levite, don't we? We have another Levite and his concubine and her father and a servant. Now, what is a concubine? I got a question this week about that. Does anybody know what a concubine is? It's it's yeah, it's kind of the second wife. You know, think about who who was a famous concubine in the Old Testament? Hagar. Yes, and she was a slave. So it might be a slave, but she is. She's an inferior wife. She's not going to have the same rights or the same privileges as a wife. Okay, so what's wrong with that? Who is this? He's a Levite. So what, what is this showing you when we talk about um, every week when we say, what is evidence of the brokenness of Israel? How is this evident of the brokenness of Israel? Should a Levite have concubines? No. 
No, it probably, we don't know for sure, but more than likely, if he has a concubine, he has other wives. So he has multiple wives. But it's just showing the brokenness. The Levites are the, they are the priest. They are part of the religious leaders of the nation. And yet we hear, have here this Levite with a concubine. But his concubine leaves him. It says she was unfaithful. Different versions say different things. The main point is she leaves. It's four months before he goes after her. And when he goes after her, what transpires? Goes to father, goes to her father, goes to the father-in-law. What transpires there? They what, Alex? The father tries to get him to stay. Well, back up. Let's just stay. Let's just stay on what happens when, when, when he goes to get her. Did you notice? Did you mark all those expressions of time in the morning, at night, the day, the next day? How many days? There's like five days. Yes. Okay. Keeping with the theme. I don't think they were, Marilyn. I don't think they were having an orgy. What's happening here? Does anybody know about ancient Near East practices of hospitality? Anybody? Okay. Anybody have an idea? What's going on here? In the ancient Near East, hospitality was everything. So you have guests in your home. You provide a high level of hospitality. Now, it gets almost a little bit um, excessive what this father-in-law is doing, that every day he keeps trying to get them to stay, and he keeps feeding them, and they eat, and they drink, and no, let's just stay another day. Let's just stay another day. So it does get a little bit uh, excessive. But this is where, this is where there's, there is a, a rightness occurring here in the story because they are showing hospitality, which is even scriptural, to show hospitality to your guest. And that's what he is doing. Yes, it's excessive, but yes, he is doing it. So finally, the Levite says, no, enough, we're leaving. And what's his mistake, though? He leaves at the end of the day. What's the mistake he makes? What happens? Yeah, it's kind of late in the day. He gets as far as, it says Jebus, which would have been Jerusalem. Why does he not want to stay there? They're Canaanites. They're foreigners. And he's like, if, you know, you can just hear him thinking it won't be safe there. So we're not going to stay there. Let's go on to Gibeah or, or Ramah. So they go on to Gibeah. And what happens? Is it safe there? No. What happens there? Okay, no one took them in, did they? So here's our wrongness that they get there to Gibeah. And do you see the contrast here? Here, there's no hospitality. Uh huh. Uh huh. 
Yeah, did you all hear Brenda? They actually passed up Jebus because they thought there would be no hospitality there or that it would not be safe and that because these are their fellow Benjamites, part of the nation of Israel, a fellow tribe, they would find hospitality there. And, and instead, they're in the city square and no one is taking them in. Now, what does that tell you about the fabric of the of this society? Right here, before we even go any further, what does this tell you about the fabric of the society of Israel and their brokenness? It's gone? Yeah. There's, they've lost any sense of community in making provision for the other tribes and for their brothers. They've, they've completely lost that and that they're not, they have no concern for them. Not only do they have no concern for them, you can imagine when you see how the other events play out that they have some idea what's going to happen or what is the potential to happen to them, and yet they don't offer them the hospitality to come and stay in a safe place in my home. So who does offer them hospitality? An old man. Is he a Benjamite? He's foreign to, well, he's from Ephraim. He's an Israelite, but he's not a Benjamite. He's there, he's from Ephraim, but he is living in this Benjamite town, and he offers them hospitality. Okay, I want to stop right there for just a minute and look, look at the characters. What do you notice, as we list these main characters up here, what do you notice about them? Nobody's named. Why is that? Why does this author tell this story about these people, but he doesn't give them any name. Did you think about that? Okay, Tony says it's typical of what's happening in the culture. Can you explain that any further? It could be anybody. We're not going to name anybody in specific because really it could be any Levi, any concubine, any father, any, you know, any old man. Okay? Somebody else? Any other thoughts? Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, if you think about it, a name, get, a name carries importance. A name says that I am a person of, of value, of worth, and of dignity. So I think the fact that they're anonymous is exactly what Tony says. It could have been descriptive of anybody. We're not just, it's not an isolated incident. I think that's part of the key. It could be anybody. It's not an isolated incident. And the fact that they're nameless kind of, begins to show how in, in what's permeate, permeating the community is a lack of value and worth for people. Do y'all see that? So I think as with intent, when the author of Judges wrote it, he doesn't give these people names. And what's interesting is the only person that gets a name, a name told in this account is toward the end, and it's Phineas the priest. And he's just a minor person. So why he gets named, the only thing I can figure out is why he gets named is that then that gives us some context and frame of reference for exactly when these events probably happened. And we talked about that last week, that they probably, even though these events are told at the end of the book of the Judges, they probably occurred at the beginning of the period of the Judges. Okay? So that is interesting. So this contrast of, no, of hospitality, kind of excessive here, 
no hospitality. What happens? The old man comes along and he says, I'll take you in. And the Levite says, well, you know, I, I can make all the provisions. I've got food. I've got my donkeys. I've got water. I've got all, everything. And he says, well, I'll provide for you. I'll take you in. And he feeds them, washes their feet, and provides a place for him. And he says, he says why, doesn't he? Don't stay out here. Don't stay out here tonight. What happens when they get inside that home and late night comes? This is a... This is a gruesome story, you all. Isn't it? It's a very gruesome story. And Noel is narrating for us here. <laughs> Trying to get us off in those days. <laughs> what happens? Who comes knocking at the door late at night? Oh, worthless fellows, again nameless. Could be anybody. The worthless fellows of Benjamin, and what do they want? They want the Levite to come out. Why? Play with him? They want to have sex with him. I want to know. We want to know him. I know it's. I know it's just brutal, y'all. But that's that's what they want. They want to have sex with him, and. What does our host, what does our host do? It, he, okay, so he says, well, you can have my virgin daughter and the concubine. Okay, where's the rightness and the wrongness in that? There's a rightness. Jeff, can you see it? What's the rightness? Do you know Middle East customs? Okay, I got a couple. Of, what'd you say, Tony? Okay, so part of the rightness is as 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 the as the one showing the hospitality is he has to protect his guests. Well, yes. Who else said something over here? Yes. So the heterosexual activity, while wrong, would have been better than the homosexual activity. Yes. Do y'all see that? So um, first of all, he's protecting the guest, which is part of protecting his, his honor and not incurring, not incurring shame on him. So as the person extending hospitality, he's trying to protect his own honor and that I'm going to protect this man that I brought into my home and offered hospitality. And so therefore, my own honor and that I'm fulfilling uh, the mandates, the code of ethics for providing hospitality and protection for the person that I brought in. And also, I don't want any shame in that I didn't protect him. Do you see... That, that's, that's the wrongness. That's the wrongness that instead I'll send, I am willing to send my, not only my daughter, but my virgin daughter and the concubine to go out. And you know what? You can do whatever you want with them. Just don't touch this man. Do you see the rightness and the wrongness and how all that gets confused 
Yes. Yes. It does blow your mind. It, it, blow, it blows my mind that, that they would see, that he would think there's a rightness in, well, I got to protect this guest, and I can't let them commit homosexual activity with him, but it's okay if I send these women out and they do whatever they want with them. I, I cannot wrap my head around that, especially when you think that is his daughter his virgin daughter, and he's willing to send her out. But it's just bizarre. But what I want you to see, because we're going to develop this, is how in all of these, back over here and here, there is a certain rightness and there's a certain wrongness. And it's all pointing back to everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what happens in the story? Who goes out? Who sends her out? It appears that the Levite, if you read the scripture very carefully, it's hard, it really is hard to discern, was it the man, the old man that sent her out, or the Levite? I think it was the Levite. Grabs her and sends her out, and they do with her, basically they gang rape her all night long, and what happens to her? Where is she in the morning? She's, and what's she doing? She has her hand on the threshold of the door. Did you notice how poignant that was? It's like she's, she's somehow trying to get back to safety and she doesn't make it at all. It's very sad. And in the morning, who gets up? The stupid Levite. The Levite gets up and what does he do? Get up, let's go. Okay, so what do you learn about this Levite? That was one of your questions in your home. What do you learn as we unfold this story? What do you learn about this Levite? He's indifferent. Somebody said he's cold. He's very cold-hearted. What other words would you use to describe him? He's very callous. Yeah. Well, he just spent time leaving home to go get her, to bring her back. And then now he so willingly gives her up in this manner to protect himself. Did you notice it implies that he just went to bed and went to sleep? Yeah, she's out there. Who knows what's happened to her, but he just goes to bed and goes to sleep. Gets up in the morning, going to go home. Doesn't seem to have much thought of her till he almost trips over her in the doorway. And then says, get up, let's go. In our minds, that's Yeah. Well, or she could have been. Sometimes the concubine was the one used just to um, satisfy their sexual needs. Right. And so I don't think that there was a real connection between, mm -hmm. at least that's my But there's still an awful cold-heartedness right. and a callousness that you sent her out knowing what's happened to her, went to bed, went to sleep, get up in the morning to go home like nothing happened, and then almost trip over her in the doorway and say, get up and let's go. Yeah, Phyllis. Uh, 
Yes. Now that we see these white extremists in life, they're, they're watching and targeted. Yeah. So it's hard for me to come back to me and ask for child, you know, history. It, it makes you wonder why she left in the first place. When you see how the events play out, doesn't it? It does make you wonder, why did she even leave in the first place? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so he finds her dead, and what does he do? Gets even more gruesome. Chops her up into, into 12 pieces and sends them out. Imagine that, getting that by courier. You know, here comes the courier with a package, and there's a body part in there. And, of course, everyone's up in arms about what has happened in Israel. Now, before we go further with that, let's pause for a minute. What does this story remind you of? Lot, because what have you looked at that? You went to Genesis 19, and what happened in the story with Lot? How is it similar? The difference is we've got two angels that Lot has taken in. And where's Lot living? Yeah, he's, they wanted him to send out to send out the angels. Who does he send out instead? His daughter, Dunny. He sends her out, but what, what happens instead? Does she end up dead? Who rescues her? The angels. The angels work to strike everybody blind, rescue her, rescue Lot and his family. They get out of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, here's what, when I say, where are they living? They're living in Sodom. Where is that? Is that Israel? This is before Israel even existed, isn't it? They're living in, in a case, living in a Canaanite city. You know, he is, he is, well, they're not even Israelites yet, really. But he is one of God's people, a follower of Yahweh, and he's living in a Canaanite city. Remember when they split the land? And he said, well, I want this. I want the best over here. And Abraham says, okay, you can go over there and live. But he's living in the midst of a lot of decadence by choosing to live where he lives. The angels get them out, and what happens? What does God do to Sodom and Gomorrah? Just devastates, totally wipes them off the map, completely destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I don't, I don't think the author is telling this story that is so similar without purpose. Why? What is the message of this story when we consider the brokenness of Israel? You have become like the Canaanites. So what we have in, in 19 and what we have in all this is the Canaan, Canaanization, I don't know if I can spell it, Canaan, of Israel. Israel, in this story, we see Israel has become just like the people that they were supposed to have destroyed and driven out of the land. Instead of driving them out and destroying them, they're just like them. Do y'all see that? You guys are no different than the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I exercise my judgment on them and completely wipe them off the map. 
So in some ways, this is God's grace that he's not doing that, that he's not wiping Benjamin off the map. Do you all see that? Questions, comments? No longer is in these events, by using these anonymous people that could be anybody, and in the, in the author giving the story, he's basically saying, this nation is so broken that my people aren't even distinct anymore. They have so become like Canaan that they don't even look any different than Canaan. Instead, they're just like them. It's sad, isn't it? It's very sad. So the 12 body parts get sent out, and what happens? It does incite a war, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, ha but first, what happens? He sends them out, and he, he tells a story, doesn't it? What's his story? What's the Levite story? Is it accurate? How is it not accurate? He said they wanted to kill him. That was one of the things that he told them. Yeah, he said, well, they, they wanted to kill me. And, and they, who does he say wanted to kill him? The leaders of, of Gibeah. Is that the truth? No. Do you notice how he starts kind of twisting facts? and focuses on himself, where he's the primary target, which in some ways he was. Um, but he edits out some details, doesn't he? So he, no, what, 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 when telling this and editing out details, what impression does he leave these people? Well, I didn't have a choice. What does he fail to tell them? That he gave her, yes. That, that he, that the man of Ephraim that was living there and he himself really didn't raise up to protect these women. Uh, that's what I mean by there was a rightness and there was a wrongness. There was the honoring of hospitality, the protecting the honor of, of, the, of the guest, but the wrongness in that they, neither one of them stood up to protect these women from what was happening. Instead, just take them and leave us alone. Do y'all see that? Okay. So he twists the details of the story, but because he sent out these body parts and he's told a little bit different version of the story, what is this Levite able to achieve? They become as one man. Did you see that? Like three times it says, Israel becomes as one man to unite against Benjamin. What is ironic of that, considering everything we've studied in Judges? Who, have they should, who should they have been united as one man against? Canaan. Yeah, and really not since chapter 1 have we seen any sense of that at all. You know, some of these judges that have been raised up have been able to unite the people, but there's always someone that doesn't join them, right? There's always someone that says, nah, I don't think I'll be a part of that, and I, I won't partake. So for the first time, here they are, all united as one man, 
but they're going against their own. It's a civil war, which is very sad. So when I think about the brokenness of Israel, when I think about this brokenness, we've also, here we have, we have a civil war where I've got 11 tribes against the one. All united as one man against him. And how does it play out? What'd you say, BB? Okay, and that's interesting. What do you see? What do you see Israel doing? Okay, they inquire of the Lord, don't they? Um, where is that? The very first instance. It's in 20 what verse? Okay, in verse 18. The people of Israel rose, and they went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah will shall go up. So um, how many people do we have with Israel? How many of Benjamin? Is it 22 or like 25? 26. We have 26,000 men who drew the sword. And then 700 chosen men. And what was unique about them? They were left-handed and could do what? They could sling a stone at a hair and not miss, which is very interesting. So they are hugely outnumbered. And yet, what happens to Israel? They get defeated, not once, but how many times? Twice. Each time they inquire of the Lord, in each time, what gets added to their inquiry? Did you notice? I mean, there's at least, did you notice there's at least some redemption of them and that they're at least, they are inquiring of the Lord? Mm Mm-hmm. They did or they didn't? They did. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, no, you're right. No, that's, that's good. Yeah, but they're at least inquiring of him. Do you see how they, they sit? Um, where's the first time they inquire? Who shall go up first? The second time they go up and they weep before the Lord until evening. And they inquire, shall we again? draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin. And the Lord says, go up. And then the third inquiry in verse 27, and the people um, inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days, and that's where we see Phineas saying, shall we go up once more? But this time what they, they wept, they sat before the Lord, they fasted that day until evening, they offered burnt offerings, and they offered peace offerings before the Lord. Why, did anybody have the question, because I did, why did God allow them to lose twice before the third time saying, yes, go up, and I will give them into your hand? Okay, you think it's because they weren't really getting God's approval or God's help? I th- you think God? Okay. Anybody have any ideas? I feel like, I mean, it's the first time they're inquiring of the Lord in so long, mm-hmm. and it's like 
like, okay, we'll just ask the Lord, and, like, we ask him to give it to us. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like the Lord's like, I require all of you. Just, you know, I think it was, they were kind of treating God more, maybe more like a genie. Like, mm-hmm. you ask the genie, can mm-hmm. we do that right? Mm-hmm. And then the third time, they're like, maybe we should do, go the full way. Fast, mm-hmm. pray, really commit ourselves to mm-hmm. God's leading. I don't have an answer. Do you have an answer, Ryan? Why twice he lets them lose? No, none of the commentators really had an answer for that. They just noted it. In the first two cases, the they know what they're going to do. They're just asking them not to do it. Yeah. Final case, they ask them, what should we do? Yeah. Um, and so there is a, a full relinquishing of the kind of sovereignty finally. Mm-hmm. And, and all of it, I mean, they're all together. Oh, yeah. It's, it, I know. And so, I don't know, it's kind of like, yeah, God's going to do what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. But we're all suckers for trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. There's no, I can't find any excuse for this. I couldn't find anybody that really gave a reason why. Why? But I did find one that said they had already purposed they were going to go fight against Benjamin. They didn't even ask God first, should we go fight against against Benjamin, and yet there's a couple of references where God caused the fracture between them that is very reminiscent of Samson in 14.4 when, when he went after the Philistine woman and the parents were protesting, but it says they didn't know that God was in this because God was wanting to create some friction between Israel and the Philistines. And then in this final um, summation of what happened here, it says, and the Lord gave Benjamin into their hands. So the Lord was somehow in it. Then it opens up more questions. Did God intend to destroy all of Benjamin? Did he even intend for them to fight against Benjamin? We we don't know. There's just a whole host of questions that come up, and we don't really know what the answers are. But like everything else we've seen in Judges, we can trust that God is sovereignly, what, what Ryan said, God is sovereignly working in this situation. Yes, Phyllis. Mm-hmm. Well, was the Ark of the Covenant supposed to be there? Where is it? Uh-uh. It should have been at Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was. So what is that? There's, there's another clue that tells you some of what's going on here. Why was the ark there? Do you remember the story in 1 Samuel where they go and get the ark because they think having the presence of the ark is going to give them defeat against the Philistines? It's a good luck charm. Rather than seeking, I mean, there, there again you're seeing kind of the rightness and the wrongness. I'm inquiring of the Lord what I should do, and there's finally a recognition the third time that apart from the Lord's working, even though we outnumber greatly Benjamin, we're not going to win this battle against them if God doesn't get involved with it. But, oh, I've got the ark where it's not supposed to be, so there's my genie in the bottle. Do, do you see this? And, again, that this, what's right in my eyes is I'm going to have the ark nearby because then I've really got God's presence nearby. 
Plus, I've got Phineas there as well. I've got a priest. I've got a, I've got a certifiable priest with the ark in my presence with a name, a priest with a name <laughs> in my presence. Do you see all this? You have to look for all these clues when in, in the midst of all this rightness and wrongness to see what's really going on in the nation of Israel. Now, they finally win, don't they? They win by creating ambushes, by drawing Benjamin out, and they are able to finally defeat Benjamin down to the point there's only 600 men that are clinging for life over at this rock. And what happens? What realization does Israel have at this point? Oh dear, we can't wipe them completely out. This is one of our 12 tribes. This, these are our brothers. But uh-oh, what have they done? They what? No, what did they do? What? Well, they had killed all the women. All we got left is 600 Benjamites. That's it. We've got six of them who are hiding out. And now they realize, whoa, we can't wipe them out. And, and, but we can't give them our women. Why can't they give them their women? They took an oath. Uh, we are not letting any of our women marry anybody from Benjamin. That tribe is corrupt, and we will not. Now, what is the irony of that? Who have they let their women marry? Canaanites. Do you see all this? The rightness and the wrongness. I am not going to let them marry those Benjamites because look what they've done. They have not shown hospitality. They did not protect us. They have, they have a corrupt society where, they, where the people gang rape a woman and kill her, but they, what they really wanted was, was a Levite man. So I'm not letting my women marry them. But Oh, but I will let them marry some Canaanites and don't see anything particularly wrong with that. So how do they solve this problem? Poorly. Poorly? <laughs> <laughs> they have got themselves in a mess, and poorly they solve it, but what's their solution? <laughs> well, they, they have two solutions, because the first solution doesn't get them enough women. Only get some 400, right? So, what's the first solution? Oh, we noticed these people didn't come help the inhabitants of Jabus Gilead. So, we'll just go kill all of them except for the virgin women, and we'll keep them and we'll give them to the Benjamite women, but unfortunately all I get is 400, so I'm still 200 short. So now how do they solve the problem? They what? Yeah, so we're gonna kidnap these women when they come out for this festival and they're, they're celebrating. Okay guys, these women are gonna come out and you go get them and you take them. So, so very creative ways that they're trying to fix this problem that they themselves have created. What's wrong with all of this? How do you see the, just the, the, the brokenness of society in these accounts? Well, we know that they, they didn't, they didn't require a sword at all. 
No. In fact, in 21, what do you notice about God? He is totally silent. Is he not? He is silent. You don't see him speak. You don't see them speak to him. This is, t- this is completely, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes and figure this one out all by myself. And again, there's that rightness, I'm going to honor my vow that I made, but wrongness in how they're going to try to fix the problem that they have created by really a wrong vow, a rash vow that they probably shouldn't have made. Yes, Brenda. I'm trying to figure out, so in essence, they weren't giving their daughters, but if the, if the Benjamins came and took one of their daughters, that was okay. Well, yeah, they're but finding loopholes. They hadn't been formally given to them, but mm-hmm. they just came and got them. Mm-hmm. They didn't break their vow that way. I don't understand why they were so keen on keeping that vow so they didn't bother with anybody else. They didn't follow anything else. Why did this have such a big deal? Back to the rightness. It's back to the rightness and the wrongness. Do you, it, it is where I pat myself on my back for the rightness that I made this vow, and by golly, I'm going to keep this vow, but the wrongness in the schemes and the loopholes that I create to try to get around it. And in the process, what, in the process of this, what's happening to all the women? Who are the victims in all of this? It's the women. There's no value for the women. No value. Let's throw the women out because it's better that this woman gets raped than a man. And let's just, let's kill all the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead and take these virgins and give them over here to to these Benjamite men. And oh, now Benjamite men, just go out and grab these and kidnap them and take them as your own. So so no value, no worth placed on on women that are their women. These These are Israelite women whom God values, but they're not showing any value for the women. And yes, some of that is, some of that is culturally conditioned by their Canaanite influences, but it should not have been that way. There should have been more value for these women than what they were showing. Do you all see that? Mm-hmm. And God is silent in this last chapter. He does not. He does not intervene. He does not speak. They do not speak to him. And it's just so, uh, it's interesting. Look in verse 22. So they have, they, they reason this. And when their fathers or brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them to us graciously, because we not, did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else now you would be guilty. So... Do you see the reasoning? You didn't really give them. They took them. So you didn't really break your vow. It's all very twisted. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt their town and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there. At that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I put a question in your homework, and I thought it was really interesting. I I can't remember if I read this or heard it somewhere else, but somebody else said it didn't say they did what was wrong in their own eyes. 
But, and I think that's significant if you sit there and think about it. They didn't do what was wrong in their own eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. Why is that a significant difference? And what does it mean they did what was right in their own eyes? How do you explain that? What does it mean? Okay, so Tony says they become so evil that they can't even see. Can I add words to that? They weren't even discerning what was right and what was wrong. Yes? Yeah, you do have to kind of think about it. Where am I getting rightness and wrongness twisted? Other thoughts? Okay. Yes, Karen, she's trying to get my attention back there. Right. Oh, we, we do it, don't we? Aren't we guilty of that? Yeah. Yeah, I want the genie in the bottle. I want the moral therapeutic deus that is there in the sky to help me to make my life better, to prosper me. You know, give me all the right elements so that then I prosper according to my definition of prosperity. Do you see that doing what's right in, a, in one's own eyes is I will set the standard. I will be autonomous. I will um, decide what is right and wrong, independent of God. Do you see that? They directed their own path. They directed their own path. Yeah. You really see that back here, directing your own path, where I'm going to take certain elements of what's right and mix it with what I think is right to get what I think is right worship. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather do it myself. I'll do it my way. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. But I think it's important. They weren't seeking to do what was wrong in their own eyes. They were just establishing the standard of what was right. And that right gets very perverted by mixing elements of rightness, but with what is wrong where I think kind of what you were saying, they no longer even discern what is right and what is wrong. They don't even know which end is up anymore. And that is the brokenness of Israel and where they're left. Will a king fix it for them? Are they going to have kings? Those of you all that study the prophets, what do you know about the kind of kings they're going to have? They're going to have a lot. They're going to have more really bad kings than they are really good kings. Now, they will get a good king. They will get David, although David has his failings. You know, David goes after Bathsheba, has her husband, has Uriah killed. The baby dies. 
You know, he commits adultery, and yet he's held up as a man after God's own heart. And who will come from David? Jesus, Jesus who is the king. That is what they need. He is the king. And the, the thing, I think the thing to see in Judges is the problem, yes, the problem is they did not drive Canaan out. But the real problem is, is Canaan is, it's not the cultural influence of the Canaanites. It is, it is what's in their own heart. They are their own worst enemy. They have become Canaanized. They have become just like them because the root problem is what's inside of them, that only Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be effective and changing for them in the future. But yeah, they'll get a king. They'll eventually get a king. So does the book of Judges end with hope or despair? And why do you answer it that way? You think despair? Why? There's no change, there's no repentance, okay? I mean, I know there's hope, but they don't, they don't see it, they don't. And it's not like, if you, you just don't know the rest of the story mm-hmm. of the hope of Jesus. And you're just thinking, well, shoot, there's no, like, he didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Do they, but, but let me ask you this, Courtney, do they even realize they're without hope? No. Okay, no, they don't. It's, it is so dark, they don't even know they're hopeless. Okay. Somebody else. Does it end with hope or despair? Does anybody disagree with Courtney? Okay. The epilogue is the same as the beginning? There was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Where's the hope? I'm going to disagree with you. <laughs> okay? I think there is hope. Where have we seen the hope? What have you learned? That's another one of your questions. What have you seen about God throughout this whole book of Judges, this very dark period? His faithfulness. What did you say? His faithfulness to his covenant. His faithfulness to his covenant. Did you say something? Yeah, yeah. Where's he been throughout all of this? Where is he when he's silent? Yeah, he is, he's always up here behind this, sovereign, as, as uh, we saw with Samson. He is sovereignly working. He is not working in, how did you say that, Ryan, in spite of or around them, but actually through them? Is that kind of what you said? Not in spite of them. Not because of them, but actually right through them in his sovereignty. He is still working in these very, very flawed people. He is still compassionate. He is still faithful to who he is and to his covenant promises. He is preserving this nation. And like Jim said last week, if you remember, right after Judges is Samuel where God begins to speak. And he begins to speak and move and bring light into this nation, into this very dark period, because Samuel is still... He is still the period of the judges. In fact, he is considered the last judge. So he, he is still there. I think it is hope. I think it is there. Absolutely. So what is, this is our last week. This is your opportunity to say, this was my number one takeaway from this study. How, what is your takeaway? How has this study impacted you?
God never gives up. So what can you know for you personally, Genevieve? He will never give up on me. Karen? He will never give up on his church and his church. In the same way that Israel survived, his church will survive. Other thoughts? Yeah, we can create our own rightness and wrongness and combine them together, our own synchronization that we talked about last week, and not even realize that we've done it. Yeah? Anybody else? It is a warning. Exactly, and that's, that's why, why we do what we do here on Tuesday morning and why I feel so passionate about it because I believe so strongly in um, the plumb line of the Word of God that when you know the Word of God, then you know what the true rightness is, not what you think is right in your own eyes. And the more steeped you are in it and the more you grow in it and understand it, the better you have a, a, an accurate picture of who God is, who you are, and you can stand, and you will recognize more readily where the cultural shifts are that may be pulling you aside. You've got to have, you've got to have the Word of God as your plumb line, as your standard. Okay, we're over time, but let me just close with this quote in the lesson from Michael Wilcock I thought was really good that I gave you all. What we have here is, in the end, a story of grace. 
Two great gospel truths from the pen of the Apostle Paul might sum up the final message of Judges. This book about a people to whom the Lord had bound himself by unbreakable promises, though they did their level best to free themselves from those bonds of love, Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's why I say this is a dark book, but it is a book of hope to me. It is a book of conviction for me to examine my own heart, but it is a book of hope that God is sovereign and he is in control, and I can't, I cannot ruin his plans. Okay, let's take a quick break. And then it spirals and spirals and ends in chapter 19 might be the most disgusting chapter in all of Scripture. Um, we won't belabor the details, but a little imagination says chapter 19 is horrible. And then chapters 20 and 21 are just sad as the nation turns against itself. And there's all this manipulation between one another and between man and God. Judges is just a, a really dark book. And um, sometimes I find myself reading this book thinking, why did you say you would only flood the world once? Just go for it one more time. I think we, if we start over one more time, we can get it. And I, I think that I, I, I want to go that direction because I believe that in my head, um, the, the, the biblical story goes Adam and Eve and then Noah and then it gets really bad and then, you know, so then we go to Abraham and it's kind of good but then after a while we're in Egypt and so we've got to deal with that but then there's Moses and we come out and they have a little bit of a problem in the um, wilderness but then they kind of figure it out and they get into Canaan and then they have some problems, these are the judges. Um, and then we get to Samuel and we have kind of this bright spot in the history of Israel. And so it's like Judges is just another one of those lulls in the story where everything is horrible, everything is perverse, things, the wheels are just falling off. Um, but it's not actually quite that chronological. There's one more book that I just skipped over that takes place during this time. The book of Ruth happens during the period of the Judges, which is one of the most beautiful redemptive stories in Scripture, happens during this very, very dark period. And so uh, rather than, and we're going to start with this, but rather than, um, well, actually, let's, let's go back before we talk about Ruth too much. The dark period of the judges was actually predicted by a prophet. Anybody know who said this was going to happen? Moses said this. Moses, Deuteronomy is a fascinating book. Deuteronomy is, I'll use red, Deuteronomy, you could break this book up into three sections, and for some of you who are with me on Sundays, we talked about this a little bit, you'll just have to suffer well. Deuteronomy is broken up into three general sections, 1 through 11. This is, so the, the book of Deuteronomy opens up with the, the wicked generation that came out of Egypt and just grumbled all along in the wilderness, they've died out. And now Deuteronomy opens up with these first 11 chapters of Moses talking to their kids. They're across the Jordan River. They're about to enter the promised land. Moses won't. He'll die. But he's telling them the story. First 11 chapters, he says, let me tell you how stupid your parents were. But let me tell you how faithful God was to bring them out of Egypt. And how faithful he'll be to you if you'll just follow him. 
And so these 11 chapters are a retelling of the story of Israel from Moses to the assembly, to the children of those who, who passed away in the desert. And then chapters, so that's section 1. Section 2 is chapters 12 through 26. This is Moses telling them the law again. Deuteronomy really just means a second telling of the law. That's what the word actually means. So Moses tells them the law again. Okay, your parents didn't get this. And they were punished as a result. Now I'm going to tell you how God wants us to live as he articulated to me on Mount Sinai. Here is the law, second telling. He even recontextualizes the law for them. This is what it's going to look like for you, a new generation, going into the promised land. And then the third section, chapters 27 through 32, is he says, and here's how God is faithful. This is the covenantal section of Deuteronomy. He says, if you disobey, these are the curses that will rain down on the nation. And if you obey my covenant, these are the blessings that you'll receive as a result. And so Moses, in chapter 29 of the book of Deuteronomy, predicts what happens in the judges. He knows this is going to happen. God told him this is going to happen. Moses predicts events that are going to happen almost a thousand years later because God is telling him, this is what's going to happen. This is how the people are going to disobey, and this is how I'm going to punish them. So if we jump back to Deuteronomy 29, and we just see, okay, if Moses is calling the shots here, what is he, what is he saying is going to take place during this period? So this is the covenantal renewal. Jump down to 29, verse 16. Moses says this. He says, You know how we lived in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. He's saying, remember what we came out of. That overt paganism. Remember, you guys know what idolatry looks like. You served it for 400 years as slaves of idolaters. You know what this looks like, Moses says. He says, beware lest there be among you a man or woman or a clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from Yahweh our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Probably some good words to say to a nation about to cross into Canaan. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who when he hears the words of this sworn covenant blesses himself in his heart. That really doesn't, that actually sounds a lot like did what was right in his own eyes. Saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. It says, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under Heaven. Now, this really reminded me of the title of your Bible study here. Broken people, faithful God. And here's a very appropriate question to ask at this point. To what is God faithful? Himself. This is why we even have to be careful when we use phrases. I, we, we were talking about it just 10 minutes ago. Use phrases like, God will always be faithful to His church. Careful with words like that. It's technically true because the church are those who are with him. 
He's faithful to his church as a result of his own faithfulness to himself. But I guarantee, as much as I can promise that this Levite in this story was not counted among the people of God. He is not faithful to broken people. He is not faithful to people just because they're Israelites. They broke the covenant. They will suffer the consequences of breaking the covenant. I have no reason to believe that this dark, dark period of Israel's time, uh, of Israel's history, shows a glimmer of people that we're going to be meeting one day in heaven. Because God is faithful to himself, not to people. Now, he's faithful to people when they're faithful to him. Isn't that, isn't that nuts? And so whenever we say God is be, always be faithful to his church, remember that he's not faithful to people apart from the church. He's faithful to him because he's faithful to his bride. Well, don't wander from the bride. So he says that uh, back here in Deuteronomy 29, His jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Somber words. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law. And then verse 22. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, where the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to the land? What caused the heat of this great anger? And now here's Moses saying, this is what's going to happen in the period of the judges. This is what's going to happen when Israel finally gets that king they want so bad. Then people will say, it's because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses of this book. Here's the exile. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are to this day. That's the fall of Israel in 722 B.C. That's the fall of, ba- of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. as the nations taken into captivity. All of that happened a thousand years after Moses said this. 700 to a thousand years in both cases. After Moses said this would happen. And so we, can, we don't, really don't have the option to come to judges and be shocked. Moses said, like, this is going to take place. And that's where I'm just like, I want another plague. I'd like a flood. Just start over. And that's because I foolishly think, like Elijah, am I the only one left? How can, like, is it just so depraved there's no one left? And I think God wants to tell us through the book of Ruth, yet just like I said to Elijah, you fool, there are thousands who will never bow a knee to Baal. Don't think you're the only one. I have kept a faithful remnant. In Israel, though you don't see it in Judges, there's a faithful remnant. Ruth, Naomi, Boaz. Now, I, I, this is a phenomenal book. It's a short book. You could probably go home and read it in about 15 minutes. Um, I, I found a great little video that explains it perfectly in five minutes. So I'm not even going to try. And we're going to let this guy, there's big screens over there, and then there's these. And Steve's going to 
play this video for us. This is Ruth in five-ish minutes. Can you play the video? The Book of Ruth, it's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there the father of the family dies, and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees. But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people, and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. And she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find Food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character, and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. He prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow, and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up, and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry her. Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble 
character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter 4, it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz, and each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed, and that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story, and that's how little God is mentioned. Right, The characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story, and that's its brilliance. Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her. But actually, the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life. But not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Oved, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. Okay, so Deuteronomy 29, stark picture. Judges is Deuteronomy 29 being played out. And so we can look very hopeless, and then we look at the book of Ruth, and we think, oh, but there is a glimmer of hope. You know, the book ends with they had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. The next book, 
Ruth, which takes place at the exact same time, tells us the story of King David's great-grandmother. Like, one of their problems is going to be solved. At least that's kind of what I think we want to believe. But David doesn't really solve the problems. David is a great king. He, he consolidates Israel. The civil war that began in the judges, it's, it's squashed. So you have a, a poor man's king in Saul, then you have David, and, and things are going great. He, he lays the plans out, and he raises the funds and all the materials for the temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. But it's only with, Abraham, or with, with King David's grandson that the nation is already torn in two again. His son Solomon takes the throne after him. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, loses the nation, loses ten tribes to the north, and you have civil war again. It's not nearly as bloody. It's just we're going to agree to disagree. We're going to have different places where we live, and we're going to have actually different places where we worship. That golden calf thing worked out so well the first time. We'll try that again. This is David's grandson. Uh, David doesn't really seem like that glimmer of hope that we thought he would. Maybe Deuteronomy 29 is still playing itself out. Maybe the covenantal curses are still being enacted on the nation. David takes the throne at about 1050 B.C. By 722, 300 years later, the north is gone. Assyria has conquered them. 586 B.C., the south is gone. Babylon, Babylon conquers them. And here's where you're left, and, and let's, let's actually read this in, in 2 Kings. If you think Judges is dark, I will argue that 2 Kings, um, I think 25 or 23, whatever the last chapter in 2 Kings, 25. I could argue that 2 Kings 25 is worse, at least from the perspective of an Israelite. 2 Kings 25 opens up like this. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. This is God's city, a place that they call Zion in the Psalms. Laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it so that the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. Skip ahead a little bit. Verse 6. Then they captured the king. This is a pagan army. They captured the king, brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. And they slaughtered his sons before his eyes, and then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah the king and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon as a trophy. That seems pretty stark. Verse 8, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And then here's the kicker. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house was torn to the ground. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captains of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. So, 
While Judges is dark, 2 Kings ends with, we have no city. Jerusalem is, is captured and destroyed. We have no king. His descendants have been murdered. His own eyes have been gouged out, and he's in shackles on his way to be a joke in a foreign palace. We have no temple. It's been burned to the ground. There goes our connection to God. That place where God, the, the Yahweh God, the, the one who set us apart, the one who really uh, uh, built this nation out of the seed of Abraham, he's, the place where he meets with us is gone. We have no connection to heaven anymore. And all this results in exile, which is a nice way of saying slavery, which is a nice way of saying the reverse exodus. What Moses warned them about coming out of Egypt has taken place. Now, for all practical purposes, they're back in Egypt, slaves again. Deuteronomy 29 has taken place. This is darker than Judges, because now, if I'm an Israelite, that promise that God made to Abraham, he can work through the wickedness of our nation. He can work through weird situations where you have people offering women so that they can be torn to pieces overnight. God can work through that. Now, the Abrahamic promise is being snuffed out. Maybe God isn't as strong as I thought. He couldn't even protect his own house. At least that's, my, that's what I'm thinking. But a thousand years ago, Moses didn't stop at chapter 29. Right in the very next chapter, chapter 30, tells us what he's going to do after this happens. So jump back to Deuteronomy 29 and then run down to 30. And all these things. So remember, 29 ends with, you will be conquered by foreign nations. You will be taken out of your land that I gave to you. 30 opens up with, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And then you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And, you will get, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord God has scattered you. So Moses says it's going to be bad. But then we know from Jeremiah, bad for 70 years. And then they get to go home. Deuteronomy 30 is happening. God is restoring his people. And as a kind of a side note, they, they actually became really, really good about not going after other gods from this point forward. When you get disciplined to the degree that Israel was, you learn your lesson at some point. They're not idolaters anymore, which is 
I believe, part of the reason why they could not accept Jesus claiming to be God. So scared of falling into worshiping another God. And they knew what happens when, when that happens. Deuteronomy 30 is taking place, but again, like, they're not going to recognize Jesus. This isn't the fullness of God's promise. The land itself is all, I mean, for, for if you look through the New Testament, the land proper, the actual holy land, the promised land, altogether insignificant. Given to Israel, irrelevant for the church. I don't want to have to go, I mean, if you want to talk about that later, I'd love to kind of share my thoughts on why I think we should have the nation of Israel as an ally for humanitarian reasons, but not for a single religious reason. The land is irrelevant. Jesus goes in and completely supersedes the promise. Anything greater. God does not stop with the land of Canaan. Because look at how Deuteronomy 30 goes on. Verse 6. So after they've come back to the land, he extends the promise even further than that. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I commanded you, that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That circumcision of the heart. That's the gospel in the book of, in, in, as we see it being played out through the book of Judges. That they need their hearts circumcised. And that they are, in the period of the Judges, living out Deuteronomy 29. And a faithful Israelite would know that Deuteronomy 30 is coming. Someday. It'll take a long time, but it's coming. <coughs> so in those days, Israel had no king, but like the title of your series suggests, the faithfulness of God begs us to look ahead to the day when our king will submit himself to a cross for the sake of his creation. They had no king, but we will have a king. In those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, but the faithfulness of God begs us to look ahead to the day when our king will send his spirit to create in us a new obedient heart circumcised heart, one that follows after him. It's, it's interesting to see how this stuff plays, how, how the book of Judges is moving to, towards a reverse exodus, a re-entry into slavery. Because if you turn to Luke 9, you have Jesus discussing what he's about to do. In Luke's account of the transfiguration, I'll just read it short. Luke 9, starting in verse 28. The nation, the, the, the people of God, have a slavery problem. Whether that is to a foreign army or to their own sinful hearts, they have a slavery problem. 
Luke 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. The actual word there spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You see, Moses led the nation that he redeemed them. Well, God working through him redeemed them out of slavery, out of bondage, out of Egypt into the promised land. And he's, I just, I would love to hear, I mean, they, they want to know too. What are you guys talking about? They're talking about Jesus' exodus, his redemption, taking people out of slavery and into the promised land. It's not a geographical thing. This points towards the gospel. We get to hope in the day that Ezekiel prophesied about this new heart. So if you turn, flip back to Ezekiel 36. I promise I only have like 14 texts left. Now we got time. You go to Ezekiel 36. Looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come, Ezekiel says this regarding these circumcised hearts. Ezekiel 36, we'll pick it up in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Again, he is faithful to himself, not to people. The smartest move a person can make is to attach themselves to God because that's where his faithfulness resides. I'm about to act for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. That's the book of Judges. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. That's the book of Judges. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I am absolutely convinced that that is an early indicator of the Gentile inclusion, of the fact that the gospel is for so much more than Jew and for the fact that Paul's ministry would look like it did. Bring you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. That, that explains the Levite. The heart of stone. His, he can't cleanse himself. It has to be done from something more power than, powerful than him. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I love the way it goes on. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. 
I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and increase the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Then he says, it is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. And then he's saying, this is what I'm going to do. And then he carries on on how, and you're going to continue to be wicked in the meantime. But one day, I'm going to do this in your heart. Which is the new covenant. Which is Jesus, that perfect king. In those days, Israel had no king. One day, they'll have a king. His name will be David. He'll be okay. One day, they'll really have a king. One day, they will really have a king. And Hebrews is a great spot. And this is, I think this is my last text. We won't read it now, but I would encourage you to go read Hebrews 8 regarding the covenant. But here is how the author of Hebrews ends his letter in Hebrews 13. Looking um, fondly at that promise in Deuteronomy 30 of a circumcised heart, at that promise in Ezekiel 36 of a new spirit within us, trusting that Jesus really did achieve that exodus that he talked about, with Moses and Elijah. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That section says, ah, we get to do what Ezekiel talked about. We have hearts that want to obey. One for us by the blood of the eternal covenant. One for us by our king. So, all this, I'll use red. Judges really fits into the entire Bible because all of this is undone in Revelation where we have a king, but Revelation calls him the lamb. We have a city, Revelation calls it heaven. And we have a temple, which is also heaven. I mean, everywhere is the temple, because now his presence is with his people. Like all of this that we lost, when Jesus comes in and reverses the reverse exodus with his atoning sacrifice, wins us back our city, our king, and our temple. And that's Revelation 21 and 22. The original temple in Scripture is actually the Garden of Eden. And if you read the description of the holy city in Revelation 21 and 22, it talks about it in garden terms. We have our temple back, ruled by our king, the lamb who was slain, in this perfect holy city. And so judges might be a little blip on the radar, 
But Ruth is taking place, and she moves on towards David, and David is the forerunner of King Jesus. And all this is just a small sliver. And so when I get disturbed about Scripture, it's probably because I have my face too close to the page. If I back up a little bit and I realize, oh, you just got hung up in Deuteronomy 29, you forgot that that's followed by Deuteronomy 30. Like, it's dark here. There's some sick, sick things happening at the end of Judges. And then there's some beautiful things that happen after that. Wow, maybe we do have a sterile view of God. We don't like him getting his hands dirty. We don't like him dealing with all of that. Judges asks us to have a bigger view of God. And uh, I trust that, I mean, I've only been in here for a couple of times, but I trust that over the semester it's done exactly that. This book, like probably unlike most, will stretch you and stretch your theology. And I hope that you guys leave this, uh, this particular semester with, um, with a bigger view of God and, like Nancy said, a more hopeful view of God, even in a dark book. You put it in its right context, that it's in Deuteronomy 29 and Deuteronomy 30 is coming, that's a hopeful book to me. Any, we got six minutes, so any questions, concerns, comments, complaints? I don't mind. Hebrews will be a good book to follow this up. You guys will have a lot of fun with that one. Let me pray. Um, and then you guys can uh, be done for the semester. God, you truly are good. And like we know from this, uh, from this series, exceedingly, sometimes even recklessly, it seems, faithful. God, I, I ask that you would convict us where we hold you to our standards. And question you. I pray that you would call us to repentance like you do with Job when he questions you. I pray that you would give us hearts that are humble. Hearts that can discern the great, great distance between your mind and ours. And while there are sections of Scripture I believe, that are just more challenging than others. The truth is, you ordained this revelation for us. You want us to know this for some reason. I pray that we would remember that. And I pray that we would trust you in that. God, I never want to apologize for you. Because everything you say and do is just right. So when I struggle, when we struggle to understand what it is you're up to, give us patience and humility. Grateful for this class, and we're grateful for this book. Thank you for all that you're doing in the men and women in this room and through the leadership of Nancy and Jim and the, uh, just the work that you're doing here. It's amazing, and we are exceedingly grateful to you alone for what you've done. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.